Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 526 with Daphne Gray Grant. Daphne is a writing coach with a wealth of wisdom to help you do your writing at your J-O-B all the better. So you'll learn, one, the biggest mistake people make when writing, two, why outlines don't work and what does, and three, the top do's and don'ts for engaging writing. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F526, or you can tap, expand, swipe, your podcast app player show cover art of the yellow backdrop gal (laughs) where it says how to be awesome at your job and expand the episode notes description and access those resources all the faster that way every app's a little bit different but have some fun with it (laughs) and you can access the show notes all the quicker Anyway, here's Daphne's story. Daphne Gray Grant grew up in newspapers. Her parents owned a struggling weekly where she worked from the age of 16. Eventually, she left the family business to become a senior editor at a major metropolitan daily newspaper. After the birth of her triplet children in 1994, she became a communications consultant and writing and editing coach. She's the author of the books, Eight and a Half Steps to Writing Faster, Better, and Your Happy First Draft. Daphne has been coaching writing and blogging since 2006. Big thanks to Daphne for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Daphne. Daphne, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Pete. Well, I want to get your take. I understand you've been working as a writing coach for the past 25 years, but it sounds like you hated writing until 20 years ago. So the first five years, I guess, were not pleasant. What's the story here? (laughs) Well, the story is I kind of grew up in the newspaper business. My parents owned a weekly newspaper, and I worked there as an indentured servant for many years. And uh, then when I left, I went to join a large metropolitan daily newspaper. And uh, I was just so anxious to get out of the family business, <laughs> I didn't pay too much attention to what I was walking into. And actually, it was good in a lot of ways. They hired me as an editor, which was a job 
I was born to do. I'm just a natural editor. I started editing when I was in high school. I would edit all my friends' papers. I loved editing my own work, other people's work. It just didn't matter. I just loved editing, and I was really good at it. So I got the job at this daily newspaper, and they mostly had me edit. But every once in a while, they would ask me to write something. And oh my gosh, that was terrifying because I mm. hated writing. And I was in a room, and in those days, newspapers were much bigger than they are now. So there were about 100 people, all these grizzled veterans who would sit and bang away at the keyboard and produce copy in 10 minutes without blinking an eye. And, you know, I would be asked to write I don't know, 500 words, and I would sweat over it. And I hated it, and I found it so difficult that I just really didn't enjoy it one iota whenever I was asked to write. So I would dash back to the editing job as fast as I humanly could. And then when I left the newspaper business to have my children, I didn't go back. I went back briefly after my mat leave and then decided, no, I, I need to get out. So I left. And I should say I'm the mother of triplets. So having a yeah. child was a, a bit of a big deal. I was having three children, not having one. And so I left the newspaper business and I decided to be a freelancer. And when you freelance, you have to do whatever is sent your way. And uh, so I had to do a certain amount of writing and I just hated it. I found it so difficult and time consuming and horrible that I kind of took myself aside, looked myself in the mirror and said, Daphne, you have to stop doing it this way. So I spent about a year researching, talking to people, reading books, exploring everything I could find about the writing business until I could figure out a way I could do it that made it enjoyable. And once I'd done that, then I started coaching other people. Well, well, that's very intriguing opening there. So I'll <laughs> bite, Daphne. So, so what's, what's the trick or what was the missing element that makes writing enjoyable? Well, I think there are two things. The biggest thing I found is that many people, me included, by the way, many people mix up the different steps of writing. So they will write a little bit and then they'll edit or they will start to edit while they're writing. And that is just a really, really bad thing to do. Because what happens is we have different parts of our brain that are good at different tasks. So there's a part of our brain that is really, really good at linear logical tasks like editing. And then there's another part of our brain that's really good at creative tasks like writing. But if you try to write with the editing part of your brain, the job is going to be horrible and very slow and painful. And that's what I found I had done for many years. I was trying to write with the wrong part of my brain. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's resonant. And I, I think I discovered this when, when I wrote. So I, I've written two books. They're not super relevant to being awesome at your job, so I don't bring them up very often. But when I was writing them, I... I very much experienced that notion that the whole brain space associated with uh, what's conducive to generating a whole bunch of words versus what's conducive to making those words make sense and be sharp are are, are quite different. And, and so I even noticed, like, if, if I had like a beer or a Red Bull, 
like that would, you know, if they had their drugs, I mean, they would impact <laughs> my brain yeah. such that, you know, hey, uh, one beer was great for me drafting words and not feeling so worked up about them, you know, and yeah. critical. It yeah. lowered my inhibitions of yes. what I was putting on a page. Uh, I guess some writers have taken that too far historically. So careful. Yeah. Well, Ernest Hemingway had something to say about that. He said, write drunk, edit sober. Oh, certainly. <laughs> and I would say, hey, even edit, edit caffeinated. It's like you're super yeah. sharp. It's like, mm, yeah, I don't know yeah. about that word there. I, I it's sort of hopped up. So well said. It's tempting at the same time, though, is like you see something that's bad and you want to almost jump in to, to fix it immediately. Like, oh, I can't let that exists. So, so what's going on psychologically? Like if we've probably heard this advice before, you know, Hey, you know, draft it first, then edit it later, yeah. but we don't do it. What's that about? Well, a great many of my clients struggle with this because I, I work with people, I work with professional writers and I work with a lot of academics. I work with anyone who wants to, to write something, but the academics in particular have a really hard time letting go of something that they know is wrong on the page and they they can't trust themselves to fix it later. But what I say to them, and this does seem to help if they really think about it, is that if you edit while you are writing, you are making a decision to do something at the worst possible time. Because when you're writing, you have done your research. You spend a lot of time thinking about what it is you're writing. You've done the writing yourself, for goodness sakes. So you are maximally different from your readers. So your readers are coming to your finished project oh. cold. They haven't given it the thought you have. They haven't done the research you have. So they're going to have different questions and different ways of looking at things than you do. And if you can't get yourself closer to the mindset of your readers, then your writing isn't going to be as effective with them. So if you edit while you write, you're way too close to the material to be an effective editor. Daffy, that is just makes so much sense to me. I, I love it. I am 100% convinced <laughs> by that argument. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> well, so great perspective right there. So, so separating the, I guess, the tasks that writing piece from the editing piece yeah. is, is key to making things more enjoyable. And, and, and what else? Well, another thing that I promote with many of the people I work with is mind mapping. Have you ever mind mapped, Pete? You know, I have, but I, I haven't used any of the cool software. I My handwriting is a bit atrocious. <laughs> it's so... Oh, uh, yeah. well, well, you know what? You and I were separated yeah. at birth because <laughs> my handwriting is so bad. I mean, I say my handwriting makes it look like that I'm an arthritic 93-year-old. But if you stop worrying about the quality of your handwriting, you're actually way better off mind mapping by hand than you are with software. Because there is a certain mindset that you want to be in when you're mind mapping. And that is the creative part of your brain. And that's why I so strongly suggest that people stop outlining, because outlining sticks you in the linear logical part of your brain, the part of your brain where you want to research and edit, but not the part of the brain where you want to write. And mind mapping, on the other hand, puts you in that creative space. And so what you need to do is you need to relax. When I'm mind mapping, I like to visualize myself lying on a hammock in the sunshine. So that's the kind of relaxed, easygoing, devil-may-care attitude you should have when you're mind mapping. You don't want to be anxious about it. You don't want to be stressed. You just want to be very relaxed. And people who are sitting at a keyboard aren't nearly as relaxed who 
as people who are sitting on a couch or in a bed or somewhere where they can put their feet up and really relax. That's the type of place you want to be when you're mind mapping, not at a keyboard. Okay. And so I also want to get your your take. I think with my, my poor handwriting, part of it is when I look at mind maps, well, one, they, they look so cool and gorgeous and illustrated <laughs> and multicolored and, and lovely. And two, there's just sort of a lot of stuff there in, in terms of, I feel like I got to go get tiny on my little eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in order to, to fit it all onto that page. And so doing my poor handwriting compounded with tininess. Oh, gets even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what did I even write there? So help me out, Daphne. What do we do? Yeah. So what I would say to you is, first of all, start with a bigger piece of paper. (laughs) So just buy 11 by 17. 11 by 17 or go to Michael's craft store and get yourself some unprinted on newsprint or go to a butcher and get some butcher paper and stretch it out over the biggest table in your house or in your office or at a library and make the mind map as big as it needs to be for you to feel comfortable and for you to be able to write in a size that allows you to read it easily and it allows your wrist not to feel seized up. Okay. Thank you. All right. Permission received <laughs> and, and granted. Okay. So uh, cool. So get the, get the Great big paper. That, yeah. That I love I love it when the solution is to buy something, Daphne, because it's so <laughs> yeah. much easier than changing uh, my activities yeah. and behavior. So cool. So so buy something. Yeah. And and what else? Well, the other thing I would say about mind mapping, people uh, often like the idea of it, but then they get to the reality of it and they don't quite know how it works, how it transforms from a mind map into a piece of writing. One of the things that happens is that people sometimes get stalled with mind mapping because what I say is that you should take your piece of paper, whatever size it is, turn it sideways. It's really important that it be sideways because that opens up all sorts of room around the side of the page, which we're not used to. And so that's inherently liberating or freeing to us. And it allows our mind to understand that it can go off in a bunch of different directions, which is great. Write a question in the center of the page. So don't just write a topic. Most of the books on mind mapping are by a guy named Tony Buzzin, very smart guy. He's written something like 49 books on mind mapping. And so he's probably the worldwide expert on it right now. But he says to write a topic in the center of the page. I disagree with that because I found with the people I work with that if you write a question, it's going to be much more provocative to you. And you want to provoke your brain. You want to be able to have so many ideas that they're spilling out of you and you're having a hard time keeping up with them. So questions will help you do that. A mind map should take somewhere between three to five minutes to do. So it's not a time consuming. No kidding. Yeah, it's really fast. It's really Hmm. fast. And the other important thing is not to edit yourself while you're mind mapping. Because what happens is people will come up with these interesting, crazy ideas, and then they'll start to second guess themselves. They'll say, oh, do I really want to write about that? Does that make sense here? Don't allow yourself to question yourself that way. If an idea springs to your brain, write it down. Don't ask yourself whether it makes any sense. Just write it down. So I have an interesting story about this. A number of years ago, I got a call from a Canadian copywriter. I didn't know him. 
but he phoned me to thank me for my little booklet on mind mapping. So if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you'll get a little booklet on mind mapping. And so he did that because he had been approached by a big name publisher and invited to do a book on copywriting. And he was concerned quite cleverly and rightfully, I thought, that he was essentially a freelancer. He had a lot of clients and he was worried that if he signed up to do this book, he was going to end up leaving his clients in the lurch, which would not be good for his business in the long term. So that's why he Googled to find out about writing faster. And that's how he found me. And he got my booklet on mind mapping. And so he decided, oh, if I can mind map my book, maybe I can write it fast enough so that my clients won't get neglected. So he did that. And one day he was doing a mind map for a particular chapter on copywriting, remember, and the idea of making pancakes sprung into his brain. Now, it's not that he was hungry at the time. (laughs) He just copywriting, making pancakes, something connected there in his brain. And he thought, This is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Pancakes have nothing to do with copywriting. And he almost didn't write it down, but he heard my metaphorical voice, because we hadn't met at this point. He heard my metaphorical voice at the back of his brain saying, don't second guess yourself, write down everything. He wrote it down and it became the organizing metaphor for one of his chapters. That's cool. And it's wild how sometimes those things make all the difference. I'm thinking about uh, Maui Askadam, our, our guest from episode number one. One of his most resonant pieces of creation ever was talking about the turbo button with playing video games. And so a lot of his work is for, you know, youth and teenagers. Right. And, and, it's, and it's a very powerful metaphor in terms of folks who want to, you know, dig deep and uh, find the ability to take some action and kick it up to a high level and they play video games. And so it's like, oh, the turbo button. It, <laughs> it really just connects and resonates versus th- that's also easy to discard. Like I was playing, I, I was thinking about playing video games and the, the turbo button on the controller. It's like, no, that's dumb. <laughs> you, know, you, you might discard that quickly, but uh, that, that's, that's helpful in terms of hearing when you make the mind map. It doesn't take that much time. Yeah. And the crazy ideas that you get might just be the winning ones right. that enrich things. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, the thing is that when you write, you need that creativity. That's what you want. That's what we're all hungry for. And the problem, if you compare the act of writing from an outline, which is so dull and boring and feels so obligatory and horrible, compare that to the act of mind mapping, which is fun and interesting and fast. And what I say to people is when you're mind mapping, what you're looking for is what I call the aha experience. So the aha experience is when all of a sudden you're overcome with the desire to write. You think, oh yeah, now I know what I want to say. And it's like your fingers are itching to get on the keyboard. And when that happens, I say, you should start writing right away, whether your mind map is finished or not. Because the sole job of a mind map is to inspire you to write. And once you're inspired, it's done its job. So don't stop writing because you haven't finished your mind map. It's not an outline. Just because something is written on your mind map doesn't mean you have to use it. And just because it's not written on your mind map doesn't mean you can't. Well, this is handy. Well, Daphne, you got me all you got me all worked up. So <laughs> let's let's talk about so specifically in the context of you know work professionals 
and that stuff. So they they might be already objecting listeners and sort of think, well, I'm not writing a really cool novel, Daphne. Uh, yeah. you know, I've, I've got to put together a, a report, mm-hmm. a proposal, mm-hmm. a, a tricky email. Yeah. So does that change the game at all with regard to mind mapping or the process? You know what? I have to say it doesn't because I, I do these presentations on mind mapping quite regularly. And I have a little slide in my PowerPoint deck that says it works equally well for nonfiction. I have never written a word of fiction in my life, and I use mind mapping every single day. All I write is nonfiction, and I use mind mapping every day. Here's another interesting story. A number of years ago, I had to do a series of articles for a corporation, and they were super short. They were 175 to 225 words max. So really short, fast, mostly easy to write. And I had a kind of a working rule in my mind at the time, which was that if my article I was writing was less than 500 words, I, I didn't need to bother with a mind map. So there I was with this working rule that I didn't need to bother with a mind map because the article was only 175 words. And honest to goodness, I had such a terrible time with this article. I spent more than an hour on it, which was embarrassing to me because I'm I'm a pretty fast writer now. And what, an hour for 175 words? That's crazy. But I just, and I couldn't get the piece finished. So finally, out of sheer desperation, I decided to do a mind map. And the mind map took me less than three minutes to do. And finishing the story took me less than five minutes once I'd done the mind map. It was just like, oh, now I know how to solve this problem. Well, that is that is fascinating. And, and, and so <laughs> compelling. In fact, I want to dig deeper now into the mind maps. Thank you. So, all right. So you get a, a yep. big space. And maybe it's 11 by 17. Maybe it's butcher block yep. paper. But, but it's something. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least if you have my problem, uh, 11 by 17 doesn't cut it. Yeah. So you turn it sideways, you put a question yeah. in the middle, and then what do we do? What, what are some of the do's and don'ts here for flowing from there? Okay, so I just want to emphasize that the paper really does need to be turned sideways. That matters. And I say this because I regularly lead workshops, and there'll be 100 people in the room, and you know we'll do a mind map together, and then I'll tell them, here's a topic. I want you all to do a mind map on your own. And then I'll walk around the room and I've told them three or four times that the paper needs to be turned sideways. And sure enough, out of a hundred people, five will not have the paper turned sideways. <laughs> so it's a really important thing to do. Naughty. The next thing, put a question in the center of the page and draw a circle around it. Something about the act of drawing a circle, it's like completing your thought and saying, okay, yes, I'm signed up for this. So you draw a circle around it. And then the next thing that comes to your mind, write it down on the page, draw a circle around that, and link it to the center idea, or the center question. And then the next thing that comes to your mind, write it down on the page, and link it to either the center idea, if that's what inspired it, or to the first child of the center idea. So you want to kind of link these ideas with lines. Does that make sense? You know, it does. And and I tell you what, it it really reduces some of my um, resistance because when I look at finished mind maps, one, they're gorgeous with the (laughs) multicolors and the illustrations and, uh, and, and it seems so darn clear in terms of, oh, yes, these are some of the subcomponents of, of whatever. It's like, okay, it's like they're, they're showing off. So, but as you describe it, it's just 
it's a way easier in terms of I'm going to be having random thoughts. I'm going to write them down and then I'm going to link them. And, and so then I guess I wonder if, so with, in the case of like the pancakes, uh, so they have that idea and then it doesn't seem to connect to anything. What do we do with that? Well, you just let it sit there for a while and you keep mind mapping. You keep mind All mapping right. until you have what I call the aha experience. And, you know, I just want to back up and address something you, you said a minute ago or so, Pete. If you could see my mind maps, you would understand how truly ugly mind maps can be. Oh, thank you, Daphne. Mine, <laughs> mine are hideous. I have horrible handwriting. I sometimes use colors if I'm really desperate to inspire my brain, but mostly I just use a pencil. And my mind maps look terrible. They look boring. And my handwriting is hard to read. But guess what? They still work. <laughs> Anyways, right. so... What you do is you keep mind mapping for three to five minutes until you have the aha experience or run out of things to say. And if you run out of things to say without having the aha experience, well, then you do a second mind map. And you take that first mind map and you use it to identify a different question to put in the center of the page for the second mind map. And then you spend another three to five minutes doing the second mind map. And if you don't have the aha experience at the end of the second mind map, guess what I'm going to say? You do a third mind map. (laughs) Do a third mind map. (laughs) And and if you don't have the aha experience at the end of the third mind map, then you do a fourth. And if you don't have the aha experience at the end of the fourth, then you do a fifth. You just keep doing it until you have the aha experience. It's it's really pretty simple. And, you know, people sometimes are a bit horrified when they don't understand that a mind map is three to five minutes. So in 30 minutes, you can do six to 10 mind maps really easily. And honest to goodness, I have known people who will sit and stare at a blank screen for 30 minutes. Doing a mind map is way more fun. Right. Yeah, that, that's cool. Well, and so well, well, I'm thinking now, so I'm thinking about one of our producers, Marco. Shout out. He's great. So I'm wondering if we're doing some work associated with, hey, let's just say it's this very this very interview. We are going to try and distill, summarize some of the, the finest nuggets for distribution to our email list. I'm thinking, you know, if someone's doing that kind of writing work, a, a summary of something, it's in a way it doesn't require uh, a sudden jolt of inspiration. It's, or, or maybe you would disagree. So I, I'd love your take on that. If our work is associated with summarizing or answering a series of questions in a proposal or an email, how do mind maps serve us there? Yeah. So the thing about mind mapping is it's a really useful, flexible technique that can be adapted to a great many uses. So I know one thing I like to use mind mapping for. If I'm planning an event or a party, mind mapping is the best thing to use because you're allowed to let your mind go off in any direction. I don't know if you've ever had to plan an event or a party, but you know, one minute you're thinking about drinks, next minute you're thinking about decorations, the next minute you're thinking about who's going to be invited, then you're thinking about music. You know, there's so many directions you can go in, and a mind map is just very flexible. It allows you to note all those things down without contorting your mind into twisted positions like you have to with an outline. So it would be very useful for, say, as you said, if you wanted to write a summary of our call today, yeah, mind mapping would work really well for that. It would be really, really easy. And you're quite right. If what you're aiming at is a summary, then you don't need the aha experience for that. You just need the main points noted down. 
Yeah, but nonetheless, you're saying that it can be valuable in the sense of just seeing what left to mind and in, in reflecting upon you know, this conversation or transcript can generate some some thoughts there in terms of, you know, that's something that's worth mentioning. And, and then as you draw the connections, you could say, oh, and then there might be some sub bullets in that sub piece of the summary. So understood. So, so we're not looking for a jolt of inspiration, but doing so can still give us some benefits associated with you know getting some organization and and seeing what really is worth mentioning and, and pops there Absolutely. And, you know, I know some university students who like to take notes with mind mapping. Now, I, I've never had the uh, the nerve to try that myself, but uh, the people who do it swear by it. Yeah, I think maybe that's maybe the first context I've heard about mind mapping. And I thought that just kind of sounds hard. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, well, thank you. You have made me a convert after <laughs> after some mind mapping skepticism. So, okay, cool. There's so much I want to talk to you about. And we wow, where to go? All right. So let's say let's talk about work. And and usually I hit the why point earlier in the interview, but we were having too much fun. So so tell me. Uh, so if you're not in a creative career, like mm-hmm. you are an engineer or a project manager, can you make the case for just how important is it to to write effectively? Like, is, is it an expense report that's, you know, not super succinct and brilliant and it's writing just fine? What's the benefit and how do we think about, you know, what's good enough? Well, I think most people probably underestimate the impact that their writing has on others. As a society, we're extremely judgmental. And uh, I try to be very careful and respectful when I read other people's writing. But I know there are some people that, you know, if they see someone who has spelled it's I-T-S when what they should have said was I-T apostrophe S, they're going to make all sorts of assumptions about the intelligence and the education level of that person. And those assumptions may be totally wrong. You know, one of my children is severely dyslexic. He's incredibly smart, really, really gifted, actually. But if you read his emails or his writing, he's quite careful now. He he works professionally and he uses software to check his spelling and all those kinds of things. But it, it's taken him a number of years to get to that point. And so people are often judged quite harshly by their clients, by their bosses, by their co-workers, based on how well they write. And uh, from a less judgmental point of view, but from an effectiveness point of view, if you are someone who is trying to sell something to other people, if you don't know how to write a good, pithy email that grabs the interest of the person and doesn't wear out their eyeballs or test their patience, you're going to be less successful as a salesperson. Mm-hmm. So it's all about communication, and that's really one of the key skills in our society. So if you feel uncomfortable with writing, or if you hate writing, or if you procrastinate about it all the time, then really it's worth taking a look at that those natural tendencies you have and trying to make writing more of a friend to yourself. Okay, certainly that's compelling. And so let, let's talk about some of those bits on if we're writing an email, you want to grab attention, what are your, your pro tips there? Oh, 
okay. So the first is make sure your subject line says what the email is about. Oh my goodness, I have, you know, I find it so frustrating because I use my email as a kind of a filing system and I will remember, of course, who sent me an email about something, but then I'll type in their name in the little search bar and I'll get the last 200 emails from them and I'll, I'll look at the subject lines and I'll have to open every flipping email to find the one I want because they don't have a subject line that makes sense, that relates to the content they put in the email. So you're going to be far friendlier to your clients, to your bosses, to your coworkers if you make sure the subject line really expresses what the email is about. All right. Another thing I would say is that many people don't indent frequently enough. So I have so much experience in the newspaper business, I am accustomed to indenting every couple of sentences. And when I get an email that's, say, 500 words long with no indents, it makes my eyes bug out. And so frequently what I will do is I will send the email to myself again, and I will just add a bunch of indents. Because, frankly, I don't want to read something unless it's indented. Now, one of the problems many people have is that they were wrongly persuaded by their grade 10 English teacher that there are some very important, hard-to-understand rules about what constitutes an accurate and effective paragraph. I just say, throw that stuff out the window. Paragraphing is a visual aid. When you have nice, lots of nice white spaces where people can rest their eyes when they're tired, they're going to be much more enthusiastic about reading what you have to say. Mm -hmm. So just put a, arbitrarily put a new paragraph every couple of lines or so. It's going to make your writing look much less intimidating. All right. I'm on board. Oh, and this, so then I also want to get your take. When we are in the editing phase, what are some of like the top mistakes or words and phrases that need to, to go because we could be much more concise without them? If you could sort of, this is your license to rant, Daphne. <laughs> so like top things you see all the time that need to go or get fixed pronto. Well, I think the number one thing for me is that most people write sentences that are way too long. And this is particularly true in corporate environments. I've worked with a lot of engineers, and engineers, by and large, write sentences that are far, far, far too long. So there's been a lot of research done on sentence length. And one of the things I can tell you, a metric I can give you, is that the optimum sentence length, as an average, is 14 to 18 words. Now, that mm -hmm. might sound pretty short to you, but understand that when I say that, I'm using the word average. So I'm not saying that every sentence should be 14 to 18 words. I'm saying that it's perfectly acceptable to have the occasional 40-word sentence, but you need to balance it off with some one to five word sentences. And as long as you have that balance, then it's going to be very readable to your readers. But if you don't have that balance, they're going to have to work way, way too hard to read it. And so what I often suggest to people is that they use some software that is downloadable on the internet, some of which you can pay for, um, most of which you can get for free, or at least use some form of it for free, that will automatically calculate your sentence length average, because you don't want to have to do that kind of counting yourself manually. <laughs> that would be way too much of a drag. So the software I recommend, there's one called Account Wordsworth, 
and that's free. You just t copy and paste your text into the box and hit the pro, I can't remember what the button says, it might say process or something like that. You hit the button and then underneath the second measurement will tell you what your sentence length average is. And if it's greater than 18 words, then understand that you need to go back to that piece and you need to shorten some of those sentences. Yeah, that's good. You know, I also, I've been using the, the Hemingway editor as well. Oh, yes. You know what? I want to rant about the Hemingway Editor. So take it away. Okay. Well, the Hemingway Editor is really fun to use, and I promoted it quite heartily for a number of years. But then I eventually realized that the Hemingway Editor makes every long sentence a problem. That's true. It highlights it and it makes yes. you, you feel like you have to do something about it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And in fact, every long sentence is not a problem. In fact, it's more of a problem to have too many sentences that are exactly the same length. So writing is a form of music in a way. If you, if you take some writing and you read it out loud, you'll hear that it has a natural rhythm and, and you want a sense of rhythm in your writing. And if you write all your sentences to be exactly the same length, that's going to mess with your rhythm. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens with people who, who pay too much attention to the Hemingway editor. Now, the Hemingway editor is really good at a couple of things. So I would say ignore what it says about sentences that are too long. So those are the red and yellow measurements. But really pay attention to the green ones because that's the passive voice. And passive voice where you hide the actor of the sentence. So I'm going to explain this slowly and clearly because a lot of people don't understand passive voice. It's not and the passive voice is used by many. Yes, it is. Zing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Go ahead. Take it away. <laughs> so my favorite passive sentence is mistakes were made. Uh -huh. So that was said by a number of presidents on both sides of the aisle. And um, basically, it's kind of a term that allows you to hide who was doing the mistake making. So that's one reason why you want to avoid passive voice. But the other is, if you think about it, the world's best writing allows the reader to form visual images in their own mind's eye. And if you refuse to give people a visual image for the subject of the sentence, then that is going to make it really hard for them to form those visual images. So it makes the job of reading much harder for the reader if you have too many passive voice sentences in there. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the main reason why I suggest turning them into active voice. Yeah, I am. I'm well on board and I'm impressed with your knowledge of Hemingway. That off the top of your head, you knew that green was the highlight they used for yeah. passive voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the purple one is quite good too. That's words that are unnecessarily complex. So my hobby horse is utilize. Why does anyone say utilize? Use is a perfectly good three letter word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I got a kick out of in uh, in consulting. There was a lot of leveraging going on yeah. <laughs> instead yeah. of using. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know, I know. I, I think leverage really does have a nice meaning in particular contexts associated with. Oh, when we use this thing, we can do so much more than when we didn't do this thing. Just right. like with a big lever. Yeah, but it, it could very quickly get overused for sure. Well, please. Well, any other rants in terms of big. <laughs> mistakes that happen a lot that need to stop. Oh, just let me think for a second. Uh, sentences that are too long, passive voice. Oh, you know what? This is a really good one. Words ending in T-I-O-N. So words ending in T-I-O-N, like creation, they take a perfectly good verb 
create, and they turn it into a noun. And so once you have that noun, then you have to add another verb to the sentence because it's not a sentence without a verb, right? And so usually to deal with those T-I-O-N words, you have to use a really boring verb like is or was or has or have. And that's going to make your sentence far wordier than it needs to be. So that leads to longer than necessary sentences. And verbs like is and was and has are hard to visualize. So they mm -hmm. don't give you really interesting sentences. So one of the things I like to do is if I'm editing something for someone, I will type T-I-O-N in the search box and I'll go through the piece and I will... Uh, justify every word ending in T-I-O-N, or I'll change it if I can. Okay, thank you. Well, Daphne, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh, I can't think of anything else right now. All right. Well, then could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorite, all-time favorite quotes has been attributed to at least six people. Um, so without really knowing who said it, here goes. I only write when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes at nine every morning. I, I've looked that up before because I think it's fantastic. And I've heard it, there's so many variations too. It's like, yeah. and I make darn sure it strikes at, you know, this time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I always attributed it to Peter DeVries, but then I found out that William Faulkner and Somerset Mom said something almost exactly the same. So I'm, I'm clear about saying it's been attributed to at least six people now. Okay. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah, so many of the procrastinators I work with give me lots of reasons for delaying writing. And one excuse I hear quite a bit is perfectionism. But 30 years of research and hundreds of studies have shown that that is not actually true. So one of the big researchers on this topic is a professor in the Netherlands named Henri Schoenberg. But for anyone who doesn't want to read peer-reviewed journals, you can learn about it in a plain English kind of way in a book by Pierre Steele called The Procrastination Equation. So what the research shows is that you're not likely to be messed up by perfectionism when you're having a hard time writing. What you need to do is turn off your phone, stop checking Facebook, stop worrying about whether you really know how to write, and just start writing. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Can I give you two? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, for someone at a typical job, I highly recommend the book, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. So what I like about this book is it explains how to build good habits and get rid of bad ones. But more importantly to me as a writing coach, it's one of the best written books I've ever read. It's so engaging. And I love the way that he reports on science through the lens of storytelling. So I just couldn't put it down. Really, really great book. Mm -hmm. The second book I want to recommend is aimed at grad students and people who work in academic settings. And that book is The Now Habit by Neil Fior. So this book presents a really compelling argument that most academics spend far too much time writing and instead would be more productive if they curtailed their writing time. So I really love counterintuitive arguments like that. And it's a fast and easy read. And I recommend it to anyone who feels they're spending too much time in writing, particularly if they're an academic. All right. And how about a favorite tool? For me, that's the Pomodoro. Are you familiar with the Pomodoro? 
Is that the the 25-minute timer? Absolutely. So a couple of things I'll say about the Pomodoro. The idea is that you pledge to spend 25 minutes on a particular task and you do it without interruption. So you don't allow other people to interrupt you. And one way you can do this is to wear headphones, even if you're in a big uh, open area office. If you put headphones on, most people won't bother you. And you have a timer operating while you're doing this. Now, when I started the Pomodoro about 12 years ago, I think now, I thought the idea of a noisy timer was the kookiest thing I had ever heard. So I didn't do it. And then I had a friend who started the Pomodoro at the same time. So we used to meet for coffee once a week and we started the Pomodoro. We met for coffee a week later and I walk into the coffee shop and she reaches into her purse and she pulls out a timer in the shape of a chicken. And she was so excited and delighted by it. I just looked at her in horror and said, I can't believe you're doing that. How can you write with that thing making a noise? And she looked me in the eye and she said, oh, I find it a comforting wall of sound. And something about the poetry of that phrase kind of appealed to me, so I decided to try it. And I went and found a timer. I'm just going to play it for you right now so you can hear. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I work with that going all day long. So I go from one task to the next. I have a little day plan on a clipboard beside my desk, and I will spend 25 minutes writing something, doing something, editing something with that timer going. And I find the timer really, really keeps me focused. And when I had a hard time writing initially, I found that maybe the timer just occupied enough space in my brain to make me forget about how much I hated writing and (laughs) just allowed me to write without worrying about that. But I find the noise really helpful, very, very productive. That's cool. And, you know, we had a previous guest, I think it was uh, Rahaf Harfouche, who mentioned she likes listening to white noise from the the Star Trek, the next generation (laughs) engine (laughs) idling, which I I hunted it down on YouTube. And and sure enough, I really like it because it kind of reminds me as a as a youngster, I liked the show. And (laughs) and it it just sort of is is sort of comforting. Oh, all those all those interesting people on that starship, you know, <laughs> this is what they hear all the time in their fictional world. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and how about a favorite habit? I think, you know what, it's my, I don't even know what to call it. Every morning, the first thing I do is I have a little uh, a chart in Microsoft Word that has all the day divided by half hours. And before I start my work, I plan how I'm going to spend each of those half hours. Uh, Actually, it's only each of those 25 minutes because I take a break of five minutes between each task. So I have found that I probably tripled my productivity by doing this. And it's a really, really great habit. And uh, I don't feel comfortable now until I have a daily plan. And once I have the daily plan, I can look at it and I can see I'm going to get everything accomplished during the day. And that gives me a sense of comfort and ease that makes makes my workday possible. And Daphne, I'm also intrigued by this in terms of, so, you know, sometimes I really like to hunker down for an hour, an hour and a half uninterrupted. And so you've got these 25 minute timer and the five minute breaks. And I guess Mm -hmm. right now we've spoken for 
46 minutes straight. Yeah. Uh, how do you navigate that part of things? Well, so you're you're entered in my little calendar, uh, actually for two 25 minute chunks. Oh, we're we're almost running out of. <laughs> I, well, you know, fortunately, I don't have anything urgent afterwards. So you know, I I can play with the calendar a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And how about is there a particular nugget, something that you're known for, and people quote back to you often? Yes. I have this expression for what I call the first draft that anyone writes, and that's a crappy first draft. And what I often emphasize to my clients is that they need to understand the first draft of anything you write should be really bad. And that's why I call it the crappy first draft. And if it's not crappy enough, then that's a problem because that's a sign you've been editing as you go. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You want a crappy first draft. When people tell me, they say, oh, I've got a first draft, but it's really crappy. And I say, congratulations. That's what you want. (laughs) I I really dig that. We had a a previous guest, David Cadavi, who (laughs) I don't know if he invented this term, but he refers to the first draft instead of a rough draft, a barf draft. (laughs) Very visceral. Yeah. That's that's good. That's good. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? At my website, www.publicationcoach.com. So that site contains hundreds of articles and dozens of videos on every aspect of writing. And if you go there, then please be sure to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. It goes all around the world. Just enter your name and your email address on the little form on my homepage. And in return, you'll not only get my free weekly newsletter, you also get a free booklet on mind mapping. All right. And Daphne, do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Indeed. I would say start with a really small habit. So there's no time that is too small. Even one to five minutes a day is enough to begin writing. Focus on the habit rather than the end product, because once you have a habit in place, you can achieve great results. Daphne, this has been lots of fun. I wish you lots of luck with your writing and your coaching of writers and all your adventures. Thanks so much, Pete. Great talking to you. I think Daphne shared the most compelling reason to separate your drafting from your editing that I've ever heard. In terms of when you edit with some distance from your writing, you put yourself in a mindset closer to that of your readers. Now, I found that very convincing. Before, I thought, oh, you know, it's more productive, it's more efficient, there's different brain states, that's true, that's true, but still, I don't like looking at this terrible sentence that I just drafted. (laughs) So sometimes I will, in fact, edit it immediately, committing the sin Daphne said not to. But there's some more fuel for the fire of the argument, that's quite a metaphor, associated with separating the drafting from the editing because it brings you into a closer brain space to that of your readers. Great stuff from Daphne. I hope you dug that and more. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep526. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. We got Chris Bears Brown talking about some pro tips for boosting your energy at work. So until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.